turning to 1 Samuel chapter 12 as we are continuing to move our way through the Old Testament and the unbroken story of how God is working in the world. Looking this morning at this idea that God reigns as king, and really we just sang it, right? Let the king of my heart be the mountain where I run, the fountain I drink from, he is my song. And as we sing that this morning, we're acknowledging the sovereignty of God who reigns over all creation in the grand scale of the cosmos, but also in the inner workings of our hearts. He is king, right? We think about the king. I'll spare you all the Lion King references this week, since you didn't really appreciate them last week all that much, and we'll just move on. I'll also spare you this morning listening to me either recite or share with you the only song that I've ever finished writing in my whole life, which is actually called The Sovereign King. And as appropriately titled as it is, it's probably about as far as its benefits go, not the best, not the best song that's ever been written. Um, I had, in my mind, it was going to be kind of like when Zach writes a song, it was going to come out right, eloquently and beautifully, but it didn't really work out that way. And so we'll stick with the song that we just sang, Let the King of My Heart Be the Mountain where I run. What are we saying there when we even sing that lyric? We're acknowledging that God is king, but we're also saying something else, and that is that we need his help. We need his grace. We're acknowledging we need him to even remind us that we should run to him when we're in trouble, because when we're in trouble and when things get difficult and when things aren't going well, when we get anxious, we're tempted to run to other places or to other kings. We need his grace to seek his refuge and to seek ransom in him because we're tempted to seek those things in other places. And the reason I think we connect so well with that song is because we've all been there. We all know that internal struggle over what or who will rule in our hearts. I've shared a little before about my story and about my heart. I'm tempted to live, I know, as if I am the king of my life. Not that I would ever confess that that is true, that I'm in control or that I am the king over my decisions, but it's often how I kind of wind up living when I give in to that temptation. I've known that to be true in my own life for some time. Those who have known me my whole life have known it even longer than I did, but 2020 has shown me that really even more plainly. It's not been a fun year for those of us who like to feel like we're in control of the things going on in our lives and around us. But yet, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily been a bad year, at least not if instead of, at least instead of trying to hold on to my plan even tighter, instead if I would let that go and learn to rest more confidently in who God is and in the truth that he reigns as king over all things, not me. Because that shouldn't just bring me consolation and comfort when I realize that God is king and that he reigns supreme in my life and in the world. That's reason for celebration because as we just sang, he is good and he never fails us. He never lets us down. And so let me just ask you this question this morning as we begin, what or who is struggling against the rightful king to rule in your heart this morning? Is it another person whom you love that's risen above the Lord in your heart? Is it the way that others perceive you? Is it the balance of your bank account or the sum of your assets? 
Pastor and author Tim Keller wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods, where he explored the idols, those challengers to God's rightful reign in our hearts and in our lives. And in that, he provides a list of diagnostic statements that help to reveal the idolatry in our hearts and says, if any of these are true, then that is the thing that is reigning as king in our hearts. And so would you say that any of these are true in your life? Life only has meaning, and I only have worth if I have power and influence over others. Or life only has meaning if I am loved and respected by this person or this group, fill in the blank there. Or I only have worth if I have this kind of pleasure experience or a particular quality of life, or if I'm able to get mastery over my life in this certain area, or if people are dependent on me and they need me, or life only has meaning if someone is there to protect me and keep me safe, or if I'm highly productive and can point to how I've gotten a lot of work done. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if my political or social cause is making progress and ascending an influence or power, or if I have a particular kind of look or image or reputation. Where do we seek value or meaning or worth? The question isn't whether or not someone or something is fighting to reign in your heart today. The question is who or what is fighting to reign in your heart today? All of us face that same struggle, and that was a struggle the people of Israel knew all too well. As we saw last week with Samson, pride elevated Samson's pleasure and his position over God's rightful place in his heart and in his life. And twice after the story of Samson in the book of Judges, though, we read again the author of Judges recording the same summary statement of the people of Israel. The final verse of Judges says it, Judges 21, 25, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There are two statements in that verse, really. One, there was not a king in Israel. There wasn't a king in Israel like all the nations around them had kings. But the second one is that everyone just did what was right in their own eyes. And so the question that faced Israel at that point or that they needed to answer whether they realized it or not was, which of those two statements was their greatest problem? Which one was at the root of their problem? Was it that they didn't have a king like the other nations? Or was it that they were all just doing whatever was right in their own eyes instead of what was right in the Lord's? And by the time we turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people had settled on their answer. In 1 Samuel 8, 4, it says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. People looked at the reality that there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes and they decided the root of the problem is we don't have a king like the other nations. If we get that, we'll be okay. Samuel was disturbed by their request, but God's answer to Samuel was telling in verse 7 of 1 Samuel 8, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. God saw the issue differently. He saw the root of the problem in that the people were doing what was right in their own eyes instead of doing what he had called them to do. He'd commanded them and he called them to be holy, but they wanted to be like everyone else more than they wanted to be like him. The problem was with the hearts and lives of the people. 
but instead of seeking a change in their hearts and in their lives, they wanted someone else, a king to take responsibility. And that's how Saul came to be king over the people, a king who mirrored the divided loyalties of their hearts so that Samuel in his final speech before the people said the, these things to, to them in 1 Samuel 12, 19 through 25. We read his conversation with them there, beginning with the people's words to him. All the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Samuel's final conversation with the people that he had been leading led them to acknowledge in verse 19 that we have a tendency to choose the wrong king. In the first 18 verses of 1 Samuel 12, we really see Samuel prosecuting a case against the people. He starts by inviting the people to bring charges against him, actually. Before hearing none, he launches into how the anointed king is a witness against the people, that God had done for the people everything that a king would do and more, yet they had rejected him for Saul. It's interesting to me that Samuel's so passionately prosecuting this case to the people even before Saul's failure in chapter 13, right? So why is Samuel so passionate here? It's because Samuel, his case, his issue here with the people isn't about just what we would see on the outside, the things that we would observe about how we behave wrongly. He's addressing the problem that is at the root of it, the root of the problem, which is the heart of the people. And that's why he told them in 1 Samuel 12, 13 and 5, through 15, now behold the king whom you have chosen for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Samuel's message is that a king can't solve all their problems because they're Greatest problems were not political or military in nature, but spiritual. Would they follow God and obey him? Would they serve God as the king of their hearts? Until their hearts were right, then nothing else they tried was going to solve their problems. Nothing else was going to solve it. We know that the people's hearts hadn't been right up to this point. 1 Samuel 12, 10, they confessed we've sinned because we've forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and Ashtoreth. They had worshiped idols. But had God ever failed to keep his word? No. 
But still the people had a tendency to worship other gods. They didn't honor God as their king. And that's where their problems started. And that's what led them to choosing the wrong king, to seeking a human king instead of the sovereign king who had given them the land and delivered them time and time again. Here in 1 Samuel 12, Samuel's recounting all the things that the Lord had done for his people, which is a stunning contrast to the way he described the human king that they were asking for just a few chapters before. Because back there in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel described the king the people had chosen as one who would take, take, take. Six times in seven verses, actually, in that chapter, as he describes the king that they were asking for, he says, the king will take, take, take. I don't know, that's, I think I said six there. But that king would take. Their desire to fit in, instead of to be holy, as God had called them to be holy, came with a cost. That was the point of that. And that's true when we choose the wrong king in our lives as well. If I put myself on the throne of my heart, I'm unable to deliver the control and the joy and the peace that I seek. If I put someone else on the throne of my heart, they're unable to deliver the affirmation and the worth that I'm seeking. If it's possessions or status or power that I put on the throne of my heart, then those things also They're unable to deliver the security that they promise. In reality, what happens when we choose the wrong king in our lives is that it steals the joy and peace and security that we're after rather than giving us those things. So like the conversation between Samuel and the people, we need to begin this morning by acknowledging we have a tendency to choose the wrong king, whatever or whoever that is in each of our lives. And once we acknowledge that, then we can experience and celebrate that God in his grace works through our imperfection. God in his grace works through our imperfection. Samuel made the case here as if the people were standing in a courtroom before a judge, which they very much were before the Lord. And the people entered a guilty plea as they heard the case against them. They confessed their sin, but before that, We hear them pleading with Samuel to plead with the Lord for mercy. They understood that the wages of their sin was death. They understood that, and so they pleaded, basically, Samuel, will you pray for us that we won't die? They knew that their rejection of the Lord and their choosing the wrong king, they knew what it meant for them. So they're begging him for mercy, to which Samuel responds in verse 20, don't be afraid. I don't know if there was any part of Samuel's heart that wanted to respond differently in this moment, although I wouldn't blame him for a quick, I told you so, or maybe a dismissive, you know, we'll see, right? What we do know, though, is that there's no part of God's heart that wants to respond to us in those ways. God's heart toward his people who turn to him in repentance and faith is always grace, unearned favor. It's mercy, the tender compassion and kindness of a good father. And so speaking on behalf of the Lord, Samuel doesn't try to make the people sweat it out. Instead, he leads with grace and compassion. Do not be afraid. Many people live with this incorrect view that God is this ruthless dictator watching for people to trip up so that he can judge us and condemn us. But that is not the heart of the God that is revealed to us in the Bible. He's patient 
and kind toward us, calling us to confess our sins and to turn our hearts to him so that he can pour out his grace upon us. That doesn't mean that God's commands don't matter. Doesn't mean that God's glory doesn't matter. As God graciously rules over his people, we find his grace and his truth can't be separated. Look at verse 20. He says, do not be afraid. And the very next thing he says is, you have done all this evil. Grace and truth, what's right and what's wrong is wrong because it's rooted in the unchanging character of a holy God. And so Samuel doesn't say, don't be afraid because it's not really that big of a deal. Don't be afraid because God doesn't really care about any of that stuff he said anyways. No, that wouldn't be grace at all. What Samuel says is, yes, you've done evil, but the Lord is still calling you to follow him. Instead of the worthless things that you've been pursuing, the Lord still wants to pour out his kindness and his blessing and his grace upon you if you'll turn to him again, Samuel points out what we know to be true, that the other kings we choose and the other things we pursue with our hearts cannot ultimately and eternally profit us or rescue us. And so God's grace acknowledges both the truth and the reality of our sin and also the unfailing love of God. And his grace bears witness to his glory, that he's not ultimately worthless like the other kings that we would choose, but he is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. Samuel says in verse 22, what we see throughout the unbroken story of how God is saving and redeeming a people for himself, says, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. God's unfailing love points the world to his unbroken plan that he cannot be stopped and he will not be defeated in his quest to redeem and restore his people. John Piper has written that grace is the pleasure of God to magnify the worth of God by giving sinners the right and power to delight in God without obscuring the glory of God. God's grace and his truth at work in his people inseparably point us to his glory and his worth and to worship him. We've already documented the failures and the imperfections of the people of Israel. But in those same moments, we can also point to the hand of God at work on behalf of his people. As we look back over their story, when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, what did God do? God continued to preserve his people and to speak words of warning and life to them. When they even rejected him as king and they asked God to give them a king that was like the other nations, when they were willing to forfeit what set them apart from the nations around them, God told Samuel to listen to the people and then to warn them about the danger of the decision they were making. And then even as the people persisted and Saul was anointed king, we find in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 9 through 13, what God did. It says about Saul when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, Behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul among the prophets? Saul wasn't up to the task on his own, but God changed his heart, and God 
gave him the ability to be king and to lead his people so that even as the people rejected the Lord, God was still working on their behalf and for their good. We know from later revelation that Saul didn't always stay faithful to the Lord, that he was seriously flawed and broken. But we also know that God was working in and through Saul, even through his imperfection. And so we see it both corporately and individually that God is not a king who takes and takes and takes, but a God who gives and provides generously for his people, even through our imperfection. So this morning, even as we acknowledge the rival kings in our own hearts and lives, we can also rest in the good news that Samuel gave to the people. Do not be afraid because God has not saved you because you were righteous or deserving. He saved you because he is righteous and he's deserving of all glory and praise. Maybe you would say this morning that I don't know your heart. I don't know your sin. I don't know the things that you've done that you doubt that God could be gracious and forgiving toward you. It's true that I might not know the extent of your sin, but I know to some extent my own heart and my own sin. And I also know the king who is gracious and true and glorious. And I know he is patient to forgive and to restore when we turn from the wrong thing and the wrong king and turn back to him. And that's why I have hope and peace and joy today. It's why each of us can have hope and peace and joy today because God in his grace works through our imperfection. Yeah, 1 Samuel 12 also shows us the importance of one more thing, and that is that God wants us to choose him. God wants us to choose him. Samuel declares the Lord's grace and glory, but then he issues another call to the people that points not to Saul and not to any of the external issues that plague the people, but to their hearts. And in the process, Samuel shows us what it looks like to serve the Lord with all of our hearts. Samuel's pledge to the people is that he would not sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for the people. He wouldn't stop teaching them the right way to live. Samuel was committed to following the Lord even when others did not. Though the people had rejected the Lord and even to some extent had rejected his own leadership, Samuel didn't give in to the lie that their wrong behavior somehow justified his unfaithfulness. God wants us to choose him and to serve him, even when others don't. That's what we see Samuel doing in this passage. And it's what he calls the people to do as well. God wants us to choose him when others do not. He also wants us to choose him because of what he's done for us. Samuel tells the people to fear the Lord, to serve him faithfully with all your heart, considering what great things he had done for them. I mean, how quickly we forget. Samuel had here, just done, rehearsed for the people earlier in the chapter, all that God had done for them, going all the way back to the Exodus when God had called them out of slavery in Egypt. We don't serve God so that he will show us grace and kindness and mercy. We serve God because he already has shown us grace and kindness and mercy. That's Samuel's plea here to the people is not to pretend to be something that they're not, not to just fake it. Because that never lasts and it crushes our joy. Instead, Samuel's plea to the people was that since God had already redeemed them, since he'd already delivered them time and time again, since he had already forgiven them and provided for them, since they were his people, they should act like it. They should serve their 
God, serve him with all their whole heart because of what he had done for them. That's why God wants us to choose him. Again, Samuel leads with grace. Remember what God has done for you, but he also here sounds a warning. Not wanting his people to be swept away by their sin and rebellion, God leads Samuel to tell them in verse 25, that if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. God also wants us to choose him because there are consequences for choosing the wrong king to reign in our hearts. When we persistently head down the wrong path without turning back to the Lord, then we will inevitably wind up at the wrong destination. If we persistently choose money or possession as the king of our hearts, then we will do so at the cost of other God-given priorities, family or friends or integrity. God wants us to choose him because he's good and gracious and because anything or anyone else we try to place on the throne of our hearts will lead to us being swept away to destruction, lead to us being separated from him. We might not see those consequences in the here and now, We probably all know of people who seem to live their entire lives with the wrong king, but seem to prosper all along the way. But God's word is not a maybe, right? Maybe this will happen. It's certain. It always perfectly corresponds to reality. I mean, when he spoke the world into existence out of nothingness, the universe came into being. When he says, let there be light, there was light. And so when he says, you shall be swept away if you don't turn your heart to me, then that's the warning that we need to heed and the warning that we need to let lead us to repentance and to turn us toward his kindness and his grace and his mercy that he wants to pour out upon us if we will turn to him. We have a tendency to choose the wrong king, but God wants us to choose him. So the first question this morning as we respond to what God has said here in 1 Samuel 12 is this. The first question is, can you choose him? Can you choose him as your king? Can you let him reign in your heart today? In our broken and sinful state, dead in our trespasses and sins, are you able to turn from the wrong kings that you have chosen to the right king? the one true king? And the answer to that is a resounding yes, because God in his grace works through our imperfections. And that's revealed to us most clearly in Jesus, who left heaven and came to earth, not because we were deserving of forgiveness, but because we are not. That's his grace, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And now risen from the dead, he's ascended to the right hand of God the Father, where he reigns as king If you've never acknowledged before to God that you've sinned against him and that you've placed other priorities ahead of him in your heart, then that's a place where you need to begin this morning by turning from things that are draining you of life to a good and gracious king who is ready to pour out his grace upon you. If you've never trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, then today is the day to do that. If the Spirit is leading you to take that step today, then I would love to talk with you about letting Jesus reign in your heart. We can choose the right King to reign in our hearts today because God in His grace has made a way for sinful, broken, idolatrous people to be reconciled and restored through faith in Jesus. And so then the only question that remains is this. Will you? 
Will you let God reign in your heart today? It's what he desires. It's what he deserves. And it's how we were designed, that God would reign as the king of our hearts. To the Christian this morning, remember how Jesus told us to pray in Matthew chapter 6. He said, pray this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is God reigning in your heart today? If so, then pray that his kingdom would come and that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is completely and perfectly and joyfully. And remember how Jesus told us to think and how he told us to live when it comes to the things that we need and the things that might distract us and make us anxious in this life. Matthew 6, 32 and 33, he said, For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All these things. Jesus wasn't talking there about things that were inherently wrong or inherently that good. He was talking there about just the basic needs of life. He's talking about what we need to survive. And so there wasn't anything sinful about wanting food or wanting clothing. But he said that we mistakenly seek all those things instead of seeking the king who wants to generously provide all those things for us instead of faithfully serving him and trusting that he will provide as we live and work and walk in his way. This morning, will you let God reign in your heart? If you will, then your life will look different. Your life won't look like the lives of the people who live and work around you if you take power, approval, comfort, control, or whatever it is off the throne and seek the kingdom of God. But what you will have is what Jesus promised in Matthew 6, 33, everything you ever need. I think I read this passage a few weeks ago, but the testimony of Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1, I think perfectly illustrates what it means for us to let God reign in our hearts. 1 Timothy 1, verse 12, Paul would write, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. We all have a tendency to choose the wrong king. Paul would go on, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. God in his grace works through our imperfection. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God reigns as king. He always has. He always does. He always will. The question is, are we living in a way that points others to the honor and glory of the king of the ages? The truth is, 
that as much as I enjoy feeling in control, my reign doesn't compare to his. Even in my own selfishness, my wisdom is not sufficient for me to always seek what's best, even just for me. My strength isn't sufficient to provide the things that I need and to secure what I need. We have a tendency to choose the wrong king, but today God wants us to choose him as our king, a good and gracious king who is ready to pour out his grace upon us. And so that our lives will say to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, today, today that's our our prayer. It's simple, Lord, that you would reign as king in our hearts and in our lives so that every word that comes from our mouths, every action that we take, Lord, in humble dependence upon you, Lord, would point to your faithfulness and your goodness and your grace and your kindness toward us so that as others look at us and see the way we live, that they would see a testimony to the way that you have changed and transformed our lives for your glory. Lord, we pray today that you would help us. Maybe there's someone in this room, Lord, who has never placed their faith in you, Lord, and I pray that you would help them today to confess that they've chosen the wrong king, Lord, that they've sinned against you and fallen short of your glory, Lord, but that they trust today, they would place their faith in you today as king of their heart and as the savior of their souls. Lord, I pray today that for those of us who are followers of Jesus, that you would help us to say without any reservation, Lord, that you are the king of our hearts, Lord, that you're the one that we live for, that you're the one that receives all of our allegiance, Lord, that you're the one that is worthy of all of the glory and honor and praise. Our God, we pray today that you would move in our hearts and in our lives, even as we sing this final song, Lord, as we sing it, Lord, may it be our response to to your word, Lord, that you are the king who reigns without contention in our lives. May it be so today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.